0: jump back into the section albeit kind of like jumping into a flowing stream at 16.1 the plans of the heart belong to man but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord and we talked about how the Lord is ultimately in control of all outcomes including very often our communications are sometimes especially challenging verse 2 all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes but the Lord weighs the spirit and I believe that that was the last verse we touched on last week so you see this idea of the Lord and his ongoing presence and this again being a benefit to walking on the path of wisdom which is the path of faith in the Lord fear in the Lord that we would walk with an understanding that God is watching. Now, that might be putting it in an unappealing way, but with the understanding that God is with us and that awareness of God is key to walking in wisdom. It is certainly the case where if we fall into some sort of sin, um, it's deliberate or manifest, we've lost sight of the presence of God. We've lost sight of a real sense that He is there with us, there watching us, um, there as our God. So we can see the delusions of our sinful heart at work, and these proverbs help to extract us from that delusion and that false way of thinking. So you know, even back to 1533, the fear of the Lord. His instruction, wisdom, and humility comes before honor. The fear of the Lord is there. Then the answer of the tongue is from the Lord in sixteen one, In 16.2, the Lord weighs the Spirit. In 16.3, commit your work to the Lord, and then in four, the Lord has made, and so on and so forth. So these proverbs, perhaps more than any other grouping of proverbs that we've hit so far, really focus on the presence of the Lord in the midst of all people, graciously in the midst of his own people. So 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And that's not, of course, I mean, this is a a proverb, not some sort of absolute ironclad promise, like, okay, so if I sit down and I plan to be really, really wealthy by the end of the year, I'm gonna commit it to the Lord, okay, it's committed, and now I'm going to expect that to happen. That's not how to use a proverb. It's not some absolute ironclad promise, rather, It is a general truth that if we don't commit our work unto the Lord, what reason do we have to hope that it will stand? We pray all the time that God would prosper the work of our hands because we realize that whatever we do, if he isn't with us, it's futile. Jesus teaches the same thing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So all of those verses share a a semantic domain, as it were, with this, or a conceptual domain, as it were, with this proverb. To commit your work to the Lord. And there's, of course, no more concrete way to do this than every morning make the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how the day commences. End of the day, make the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the way the day ends. Every day, from start to finish, is lived in light of God's presence, and is lived in a a kind of concrete commitment to the Lord. So we ask his blessing upon our work, that he would, of course, give it success, but also that it would please him. And I think that's what's at the root of your plans being established. You know, he allows us these freedoms and the things underneath us to make certain goals and to, to, you know, have certain plans and purposes and as we commit those things to him and commit ourselves to him he prospers that wonderfully and the history of the church is the history of that prayer being answered and that prospering of the work of our hands. I think even when things go terribly wrong with the Lord they still go terribly right And that's the pattern of the cross, the pattern of Christ crucified, when it was all going terribly wrong by any human vantage point. It was all going exactly how it should go and for a greater and higher glory than any could have conceived. And so that's part of entrusting ourselves to God, too, when plans from our vantage point or from a certain earthly vantage point fail or don't go the way we had hoped they would go or had prayed that they would go we still entrust that to the Lord, that his good purposes would be done. All right, a little further, and then I'll, if you have any comments there, um, just save them for a second longer as we move on to four. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble, which is great. Now, do you think that this proverb is here uh, saying that God is responsible for creating evil people? Ex nihilo, he makes evil people. That's what he does. I don't think so, and why I don't think so is because there's a lot of verses (laughs) that say that that's not what he does, right? So we we read the scriptures in light of the scriptures. Rather, it's this kind of secondary sense in which, okay, man has fallen away, But that doesn't mean as though God's like, oh no, they rebelled against me, now they're in control. (laughs) All things are still in his hands. All things are not only made by him and made good, even if they of their own volition turn wicked, they still remain his creatures and they still remain according to his purposes, even if that purpose is destruction. So the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So consider it from a different angle. Why are there wicked people that afflict you? Answer, according to this proverb, for God's good purposes. He brings the day of trouble upon you, for his good purposes. He uses the wicked, even as they afflict you, for his good purposes. Luther, as is his way, always takes everything to the extreme, much like our Lord Jesus. But Luther, as is his way, will in this vein call the devil God's devil and will even say that it is the devil who taught him theology. Now you can imagine how that would sort of delight his Roman Catholic opponents. They'd be like, aha, we knew it. But what Luther really means is that if it were not for the afflictions that the Lord allowed the devil to do unto him, if it were not for the wicked false teachers and other wicked personages, then Luther would not have been driven into the word of God and would not know it nearly as well as he did. So even these evil things are made for God's good purpose. And they're not outside of God's control. It's not like, oh gosh, the devil rebelled. Now there's nothing I can do. Ooh. you know and God's just up in heaven kind of wringing his hands like we are down here on earth, wringing our hands. I mean, it's an absurd view. God allows the devil to go only so far and no further, this but not that, and everything that the devil uses. I mean, imagine how frustrating it would be to be the devil. Imagine the impotence. Because no matter what you do, God ends up using you as a tool for good. And so I think that that's then at the essence, more of an existential kind of observation here in this proverb, that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, and that even includes the fallen world. Sometimes I'll take it to um, this, this level or this degree, that God, after the fall, redesigns the world or orders and organizes the world such that it still fits his good purposes, which are leading men back to him. So that baked into creation is the fall. Baked into creation is this reality that as you pursue various false gods, which is our fallen nature, one by one they'll let you down, one by one you'll smash them or they'll be smashed. That as C.S. Lewis says, pain is God's megaphone, that even as you experience pain and suffering and meaninglessness, all of these things are made by God to use the language of the proverb made by God for your good purposes for the blessing and benefit of those who love him all right so that's the sense then of this proverb let me pause there see if you have any thoughts or reflections fair game here anything in the immediate context
1: There's one... Oh, there, okay. Please, yeah, go ahead. I, um, the book of Job is really interesting because, it to me, it, it parallels what you're talking about because Job, I don't think, had any concept of what God was doing. He just wouldn't uh, uh, give in to his wife and friends to, to curse God and die. He just... <laughs> he knew god was going to um be be there for him and 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 uh no matter what he he trusted him and uh, i think it's uh 1920 or Job 19:20 or close to that, where uh, my salvation is. How does it go, Pastor? Uh, <laughs> you know. Job 19:20. I think it's around there. I Just can't re- a second. Let me bring
0: it up. in My photograph. <laughs> no, you memory. know,
1: we uh, we quote we quote it all the time. Uh, my salvation is near, uh, or something to that effect. Are you and, talking about
0: the resurrection
1: passage from yeah. Job? Oh, yeah, 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 where, yeah. And then he says, right right after that, my I will see. Uh, the Lord with my eyes, or with my body. Yeah, right. Though, yeah. though my flesh is thus destroyed. Yeah, yet, yet, yet in so. this body I will see God. Yeah. <laughs> Alice got that. All right, nice job, Alice. So, but but I mean, he he. I don't know if we could be more like him. Uh, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, Job's Job is just a great meditation on the passion of Jesus, and is a it, obviously he's a type, a foreshadowing, a reflection, depending upon just the angle you're viewing it. But it's really a story of the passion of Jesus and a story of Job as one who is who falls gloriously short <laughs> of jesus and yet gloriously higher than your average joe he does far better than i would do but it's a it's a meditation on uh, on the god who afflicts job doesn't do anything to bring that affliction upon himself it's simply brought upon him by Satan, and God permits it for the good purposes of Job and countless other souls who have learned from it. So right, right of course, along with that, in, in terms of the wisdom literature genre, Ecclesiastes, which is largely a meditation on the fallen state of the world, and in many respects, the beauty of Ecclesiastes is that all it shows how all of these things are sort of like empty in a way that can only be filled by Christ. And so, so it's sort of an observation of creation and indeed enlightens our eyes so that we can see creation as it is. We can see the design implements of God, how so many things are frustrated that don't need to be frustrated or that shouldn't be frustrated, especially in the lives of Christians, I think, especially in these evil days, I've heard this more uh, from parishioners, and I've experienced this more myself, just how nothing seems to go right anymore. And how it used to be like, oh, yeah, well, there's always like two or three things on the burner. Now it's like, well, there's 20 or 30 things on the burner. And just futility and frustration. It's an evil age, and it's a time in which God's judgment is falling upon us. And God's judgment always begins with the church. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And because he, he's going to use these things, these frustrations to draw us away from the world, away from our idolatries and sinful propensities, and to throw ourselves upon him and upon his mercy in Christ, which is the most healthy thing we can have this side of heaven. So God is always and ever working that in good days or evil days, as the case may be, and I think we're certainly living in evil days. Any objections to that? I'd be interested to hear an argument. (laughs) Okay, please, yeah. Uh, I don't understand, um, in the first verse, the answer of the tongue, that phrase. uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Yeah, so I touched on this um, in some depth and detail last week. Let me just, just for the sake of not playing my own song all over again, here's what the commentary says on this verse. This verse reminds readers that no matter what plans people may have, God determines the course of human events and even provides the words for believers to furnish wisdom to others. God can even control answers given by unbelievers so that that he changes and guides historical events in the world. An example is the prophecy of Caiaphas, that it was better that one man, Jesus, die for the people rather than for the entire nation to perish. Caiaphas did not understand the greater implications of his words. So a meditation on whatever the plans of man may be, the outcome is up to God. And poetically, the outcome is here, the answer of the tongue. So that Caiaphas... Why Caiaphas is a good example of this, I suppose, is that Caiaphas means something entirely different, has something entirely different in mind. Namely, political. That it would be better that this Jesus of Nazareth, this rebel rouser and troublemaker, just be put to death and we can all go on peacefully living under Roman rule. That's better, right, than the alternative. That's what he means. God brings this out of his mouth and hidden therein is a profound irony and truth that it is Christ dying for the people, not in the way Caiaphas thinks. There's especially a beauty here because Caiaphas is the high priest. And so God is putting the profound truth into Caiaphas the high priest's mouth that he will. it is expedient for Christ to die for the people, the atoning sacrifice for the people. Even though Caiaphas means it entirely wrongly, God brings it about objectively and truly. You can think of another example that's then very obvious: is uh, Pilate writes above Jesus, um, King of the Jews, and they all get torqued off because you know this man. You should say this man said King of the Jews, <laughs> and Pilate says, "What I've written is written." Now, how does Pilate mean that? There's no indication at this point that the pilot was making some pious statement; rather, the contrary. He's rubbing it in the Jews' face. Here's your king. Here's what ha- you, you want a king. Here's what'll happen to him. Anyone else want to be a king of the Jews? You'll become a human billboard for all the passerby's. That's how he means it. But of course, we can't help but glory in the truth, the profound truth, that he's not only the the king of the Jews, but also the king of the whole world, exalted and crowned and throned uh, with his glorious wounds and scars like dazzling jewels. So we can't help but see his royal dignity and divinity even in that moment of humility. Yeah. So this idea that um, no matter what the plans and intents of man are, God's going to have his way And just you you think to yourself as a fallen human being, well, I'm in control of at least what comes out of my mouth. (laughs) No, you're not. And you're certainly not in control of the meaning or the outcome. So a bit of humble pie there too, right? In terms of, uh, yeah, man plans and God laughs. Great question,
2: please. From a, a human perspective, it seems God afflicts uh, unequally and in, in, in different ways, uh, disproportionately. For example, the uh, psalmist in uh, Psalm 73, um, and um, if you could comment on that, uh, f- from our standpoint, we, we see a disproportion. We, we see good people suffering, and we see bad people or wicked
0: people Prospering. Oh, yeah. There's, there's psalms and scriptures that meditate upon that paradox and that mystery. And the answer given to just oversimplify the whole thing is that, well, you're exactly right. It's not just. And that because the scales have not yet been balanced. Your, your complaint of injustice is registered. But don't thereby assume that God is unjust. You need to wait until he balances the scales. Then if you have an accusation to bring against him, that'll be a valid accusation, but spoiler alert, not one of us will. Now, in terms of why do some suffer more than others, this is the mystery of a God who loves diversity and a God who leads us in ways that we do not choose to go. And some he takes willingly, and some he takes unwillingly, but he will form us into vessels according to his good pleasure. So you find uh, happy martyrs and unhappy martyrs in the scriptures and amongst the prophets. Either way, God has his way and has his will. And this again is, okay, I, I love how this just slaps me in my face as an American, because egalitarianism isn't the golden rule and isn't the highest order of God's creation. Uh, It's to take nothing away from human dignity. We're all His beloved children. We're all created by Him. We're all redeemed in Christ. But that doesn't mean He wants us to all be the same. Look at creation. There's diversity everywhere. Different kinds of birds for crying out loud let alone you go out into a forest and there's all kinds of different foliage and different trees one with one glory and another with another some tall some small all of creation tells us of this diversity that god loves and the heavens do too i mean the heavenly bodies of course but the angels and all we read about in the scriptures and the hierarchy of angels and the diversity of angel species it's going to be no different with the saints and this is God's prerogative and what He does. We shouldn't pursue martyrdom. We shouldn't pursue suffering. When it comes knocking in whatever form, we should receive it from His fatherly hand and understand His good purposes. So it comes from a loving father to children, and He's raising us. That's the analogy of Scripture and really the reality that underlies all of this is he's raising us and he doesn't want all his children to be the same. He wants us to be different. He wants there to be a diversity. Strengths, weaknesses, sufferings, lack thereof. Um, People who care for others and people who are cared for by others. And seasons over the course of your life in which you'll do one or the other, or maybe both. All of the, all of which are the callings and vocation of God and the way he shapes and forms us individually and corporately together as his people does that help see it from that angle yeah please yeah uh, two thoughts one
1: happy under the Roman rule brought into to my mind the Israelites who wanted to
0: turn around and go back and live under in slavery under the Egyptians
1: yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing, uh, back to verse four, was, uh, their without persecutors, we couldn't have
0: the persecuted to yeah, be blessed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> well, you're exactly right on. I mean, that's that's what you're saying. Even the evil people for the day of trouble, the wicked for the day of trouble. I, the same thing is true. Now, this is the one that, like, makes me need to put a stick in my mouth and bite down because I don't like this, but it's the way it is. The same thing is true for false teaching within the church and false practice within the church. It's there because God allows it to be there and more than just allowing it to be there, it's there so that those who are faithful can be shown, can be revealed. There is a blessing that God brings through false teachers false prophets scoundrels and persecutors within the church the wolves in sheep's clothing it is an opportunity to again taking a page from Luther know the Word of God more deeply defend and stand firm in that Word of God and find out who the real Christians are now the great challenge one thing that excites me about this is you'll always find out what the real controversy, what the real heresy is, what the real controversy is. Because when you speak the word of God, all hell breaks loose. That's a pretty good indicator that you're dealing with one of the real heresies, not one of the fake heresies. Or that you're dealing with one of the real heresies instead of just sort of, um, what do those guys do Back east, when they they dress up in all the Civil War garb and you know they go out and they kind of pram- oh, reenact, yeah, yeah, yeah. So these historical reenactments, you know, the church is always in danger of becoming the church of historical reenactments. So then you notice this in the life of the church or the life of a congregation, the the way a, a pastor teaches or preaches, all he's ever doing is retreading safe ground and taking you back to reenact battles that were already won. And it's a piece of cake. Nobody gets up in arms, nobody even gets worried. Many people enjoy it because they fall asleep. But it's because he already knows the answers and he can give you the answers. And if you're wrong, he already knows how to correct that. And he's not in any danger himself of falling astray and everything's safe and comfortable and sleepy and dead. (laughs) So the real blade's edge of the the sword of the spirit being the word of the of god is conducted where the word of god goes right up against our culture and our sensibilities and where it's uncomfortable this idea that well oh, i've been a lutheran for many decades sonny i've been a lutheran longer than you've been alive kind of thing you know uh, okay do you, but as a lutheran do you not believe that the word of God is a living word of God and might call you to real, genuine repentance? I mean, really, metanoia, change your mind. I once thought, X, I have to admit that I was wrong. I now believe, why? And I believe, why? Because the scriptures enlightened me. They changed my mind. The last thing on earth we should be embarrassed about is that kind of thing. And that's written all through the Proverbs here, is that you have to humble yourself in order to be exalted. You have to be willing to be wrong before you can be corrected and be made right. If you're walking around believing that the version of Lutheranism or the version of Christianity that you received de facto by birth is in need of no examination in the light of the Word of God, then there's none that can help you. You've locked yourself in your own perfectionistic little box and you've cut yourself off from the living voice of the living God. So these are all things for us to consider, especially when we examine what ways is the devil actually attacking the church? Right here, right now. In what ways are our thoughts and our feelings conformed not to the word of God, but to the spirit of the age that's the the cutting edge so this idea then that when you're talking about real truth against real heresy there's going to be uproar and that uproar is by design and the division itself is by design and that design is God revealing those who are his and those who aren't those who are true and those who are false. Right? So it's a fact, that's what scripture says. And you know, again, as a, as a pastor, I don't love that. Nobody goes into the pastoral office going, boy, I hope there's a bunch of division over the word of God. And everybody goes into the pastoral office going, gosh, I hope I can preach the word of God and its truth and purity and everybody loves it. You know. But how realistic is that expectation? And precisely how many times does that happen in the Bible? Where somebody preaches the Word of God for a a career, a lifetime, (laughs) and it all goes swimmingly. Never, not once. So those are important things for us to keep in mind, I think, as we reflect more broadly on this proverb, that even the wicked are made for the day of trouble, and God specifies uh, subcategories of that throughout His Word. Okay, here, and then we got one in the back.
2: Andrew Clavin, in one of his books, says, we relive the Garden of Eden over and over.
0: Yeah, the did God really say, that kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's the sense in which uh, all false teachings are boring. You know, just did God really say?
2: Um, uh, Oh, I look back on my life, and at times I thought, well, this was a mess, that wasn't right, that shouldn't, that's a fluke and everything. And I look back and I say, oh, it was ultimately, it was a good thing. And the other thing,
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for those reflections. Yeah, absolutely. Two hands in the back.
3: I don't think this is off topic. I was reading the paper this morning, and there was picture. There were pictures of cathedrals in Europe that were being used for hotels and bars. And it said, um, 50% of Europeans believe there's a God, 10% go to church, and the rest... And I thought, oh my goodness, they're in that church. It's almost a desecration. It is a desecration to me. And it's so easy to let society just say... Oh, that's not so bad. I have a friend who does that. That's not so bad. It's not so bad. And yet, you know, Katie came back from the convention and said, there's a big outreach to put Lutheran schools everywhere, especially down here. Mm. (laughs) And um, they're going to urge LCMS Lutherans to send their children there. Not, Not like, oh, if you feel like it. It's like, we'll do whatever it takes. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's good. Yeah.
0: Man, I mean, that sounds good to me. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right behind Alice, yes.
3: So um, you're saying that all the evil and like the sin that's in the world right now is um, the works of God, and it's so that people who truly love Him can build up their faith. Is that what you're saying?
0: No. No, okay. Okay, so we want to first make a a very clean demarcation because it's very important. God is not the creator of evil in the sense that God says, you know, I'm going to make a a Christian whose destiny is to dwell with me forever in paradise, and I'm going to make an unbeliever whose destiny is to be in hell forever. That's not something... God does, and we know that because His Word never spells that out. In fact, His Word spells out that all things are made good. He makes everything good, and He sustains it in goodness. That's why we still have some experience of His goodness, you know. The sun, uh, you know, rises every day, the rain falls, there's food. I mean, these are all evidences of God's goodness and His goodness written into creation still abiding. Now, when Adam and Eve, of their own volition, of their own choice and will, fell into sin, they led not just the human race, but the whole of creation into rebellion against God and into corruption. It's at that point that we pick up and we say, God uses, in fact, even designs this corruption, the fallen elements of the world, the bad things and bad people, He uses them for his own good purposes okay so that's to bring men to salvation that's uh to shape and form his children conforming them into the image of christ and into ever greater glory so it's to say that god hasn't abandoned creation though it's fallen and his good purposes are such that they work even in and through the evil that is the direct result of human agency or the direct result of a fallen, cursed creation. Does that help clarify? Okay. So God wasn't sitting up before the foundation of the world, going, "I'm going to make a bunch of evil stuff." Well,
3: right. Like, yeah. I I, w- I know that God isn't doesn't. God himself doesn't yeah. create sin, but, um, like, is it, is it so that all this sin is so that people can come to him? Is, I mean, I'm not,
0: Yeah, I don't know how to, I mean, I there, know how to say yeah, that, ask a, that question. Well, there's a little bit of a paradox there. Of course, we would like to say, well, all my sin isn't my fault. It's God's fault. He's allowing this to happen so that I can know Jesus more. <laughs> Right? which is just a fancy way of saying, I'm gonna go on sinning that grace may abound. So obviously that's precluded, but what we, what we are saying is even though human volition, human sinfulness is of itself a rebellion and a turning away from God's good purposes, his good purposes are never thwarted by that, okay? In fact, he will turn and use that for the good of his people. Right, so I I don't know, we could think of uh, a concrete example. you know, what if, uh, so we were talking about false teaching in the church. What if a false teacher emerges in the church and starts leading a bunch of people astray? Okay, we don't want to wring our hands and say, well, why is God allowing this to happen? Or God is powerless to stop this. Or um, look at the power and the strength the devil has to subvert. Uh, Maybe he's more powerful than God since he can subvert the very people of God. The biblical light shed upon this is that God will use these evil things for his own good purposes. And so we need not be afraid even when terrible things happen within his church. We need to entrust that though he himself is not the author of evil, he will nonetheless write the story in such a way that this evil introduced turns out for the good of those who love him. So I know that's kind of a complicated point to wrap our heads around. um, And there are obviously some texts that can help. Job was mentioned. Ecclesiastes was mentioned. Some of the Psalms can be helpful because as you pray it, you get to know it better. um, Kind of almost more with the heart than the head. Um, But we can talk about it a little more further too if you have continued questions.
2: I, I kind of look at it as... When things are going well, we get fat and happy and little learning is often taking place. Yeah. When things are rough and tough and sin abounds everywhere, it sharpens us if we allow it to because you have to think through why is it going on and, and you have to recall and remember that God is sovereign, which helps you accept what's happening to you, but the brain doesn't like difference. It's a threat. It's just a neurological f- threat to every human. And so when things are going well, it gets our, I mean, going bad, it gets our attention because we want to survive. And, and it's my calmingness when things aren't going well and sin abounds around or even within that I understand that God is speaking to me and guiding me through these troubles, and it's drawing me closer. I, you hear, there's so many examples in the Bible where, you know, the people of the Bible have said it drew me closer. Thank goodness for this trial and tribulation, because you can allow it. It, it takes the sting of of the awfulness of what might be going on in your life, or observing in other people's. Um, it takes the sting away when you realize God is sovereign, and and he's using this to sharpen me,
0: to just sharpen me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Any other uh, questions, comments? Let's go a little further so I can feel better about myself. <laughs> Verse 5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. So again, the chief way in which he roots out that arrogance is through his law. But along with St. Paul, we can also say through the accusation of a person's conscience. So that even if they're without the law, their own conscience accuses or excuses. So, one's own conscience, one's own experiences in life, the way that the world itself is designed, are all attacks on inborn human arrogance. So, God uses this in order to attack human arrogance ultimately his purpose is to humble and then exalt and exalt us in a way that we're not puffed up or made arrogant by the exaltation but nonetheless that we are in fact exalted so antithetical to all of this is one who despises the correction of his ex- life experience who despises the correction of his own heart who despises the correction of god's word ringing in his eardrums and remains arrogant And that's why it's an abomination to the Lord. Notice too that it it doesn't just say God hates the arrogant heart, but God hates everyone who is arrogant in heart. So it's not this, we can't make this kind of clean bifurcation between sin and sinner in every case. The second part, be assured he will not go unpunished. And that is to the point made earlier that Relax. Just because the arrogant and the haughty and the wicked all prosper right now, they won't. So an article of the faith, this side of heaven, is that God is just because he doesn't appear to be. It does in fact appear that the wicked prosper, that they get away with it all that the innocent suffer, and that they never find any vengeance, retribution, justice. God, in his word, promises, and that's why we call it the day of judgment, or the day of reckoning, that all accounts will be balanced. That means, then, don't lose hope and don't lose heart when the wicked are prospering. And least of all, don't fall into the apostatizing temptation of going, well, apparently, God doesn't care. So how about if I just join them? Don't fall for it. Because the balancing of the scales is coming. To be wise is to live accordingly. So again, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And then we'll leave off here and start here next week because it's so great. By steadfast love, and that's the chased word, by steadfast love and faithfulness, Iniquity is atoned for, and by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Okay, here is the beautiful remedy of our sinful cona- condition. And we'll reflect here on how the steadfast love of the Lord is such that it interpenetrates our hearts, that we love because he first loved us. And because of his undying faithfulness toward us, we, to whatever part it is granted, are faithful unto him. And that because he imparts to us fear of himself, fear of the Lord, a proper understanding of who he is and who we are as his creatures, then he strengthens us to turn away from evil. The heart and the center is that atonement, the Yah Kippur, to cover or make propitiation. So here, even in the Old Testament, buried in a book like Proverbs, you have ultimately a preaching of the cross of Jesus, the atonement, the reconciliation between God and man. We'll talk about the dual nature of that more next week, how God, of course, is the initiator, but he also has us participate in that, not that we participate in our justification or participate in our salvation, but that nonetheless, the fruits of his actions change us such that we join him in a mutual reconciliation. So it's one thing to know that God is at peace with you. But a fruit of that is to also be at peace with God. More on that next week. The Lord be with you.